But it's not quite the same because we, we understand. We, we understand the self-love. It's self and, and the importance of, of building ourselves up. Because who's going to build ourselves up if we're not the ones doing it? Bye. That was so wild. Okay. This is your favorite show that you love to listen to all the time. It's the PhD Divas. Woohoo! Liz. And this is Danielle, and I'm very proud that Liz got her title right. I did. I got it right. I've gotten so good at it. That's what yeah. PhD's done for me. <laughs> Dr. Wayne. Can't, can't go wrong with that. No, I'm always right. And speaking of being right, <laughs> <laughs> I think it'd be an interesting segue to our topic, which is. I think it like I think it's always interesting to talk about our methodological differences because of course Liz is in biomedical engineering and I'm in an English literature, and like what does it what does it mean to be right in our disciplines and what what does it really count to be evidence and so I think we can have this conversation about what is evidence or fields but also like what does it mean to have evidence in popular culture or in ongoing discussions about like police brutality for example, mm -hmm. so I think there's a lot of things we could touch upon. Absolutely. So when I think of evidence, I think of graphs and figures. Um, I think of reviewer number three, who is always messing up your papers <laughs> and won't get accepted. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, the science people will know what I'm talking about. Do you know what I'm talking about? Oh yes, about so that? like we have something similar where we, well, we, I think our joke is like reviewer B. Like really? reviewer B is like always the one that is the problem. Typically for us, I think in papers, like there's two reviewers. Uh -huh. And so- oh, just two. Yeah, and so there's often the problem again of like a lot of I know a lot of people who have gone completely contradictory readers' mm -hmm. reports on articles, and you don't really know what to do. And so people say, oh, "Reader B, what do you expect me to do? <laughs> really, like you just are sad that I didn't write the article that you wanted to write." But there's this um, funny, funny, funny uh, YouTube clip with um, what they've done is they've taken a scene from the uh, movie. I don't remember the name of the movie, but it's a scene where Hitler is talking to... Oh, yes, to Downfall. 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 So Hitler is talking to his like fellow military leaders or something, mm -hmm. except they dubbed it. So now uh, the professor is Hitler and the graduate students are the other... Yeah. And they're, and they're walking into the room and they're like, oh, professor, professor, uh, we have some revisions to do. <laughs> and then it's like, oh, but then revision number three wants this and then Hitler aka the professor goes crazy and he's like I'm hit number three it's just really funny because mm -hmm. it's been dubbed uh -huh. over well like there's there's a, the, the subtitles, subtitles. Yeah, yeah and it matches so perfectly that feeling when reviewer number three wants more experiments so with that maybe that's a little more to do with peer review yeah but but peer review is really about like making sure the evidence is good in either right. of fields. Can you prove to other people, do other people believe you when you say you provided enough evidence? Mm -hmm. And um, and in that case, it's I, I find that it's also, even with the scientists, field-specific. So mm -hmm. in um, biology, they want lots and lots of data. And it, like there's certain things that you could not get published without showing... Um, like the Western blot of all the protein samples, and you can't um, mess with the figures in any way, like mm -hmm. the color intensity. You have to have at least three controls. So you have like your experiment that you were trying to prove, mm -hmm. and then you have the positive control, the negative control, and a rescue, and a blank where there was no thing in it. it it's just like multiple 
grasp of everything. So I, I find that within each discipline, the kind of experiments they want you to do can be very similar. Uh-huh. And you stand out like a sore thumb if you don't have the kind of experiments that they want. So I think that's really interesting because I think on this like interdisciplinary level, it's like evidence is supposed to be something that's subjective. But even in sciences, which as a field perhaps holds um, the idea of truth in a different way than we do in the humanities, like it still is field specific to some extent. Like what what is weighed in different ways? What is closer to being the type of evidence which is the right type of evidence in a particular field? Right, and, it, and some of it has to do with how um, how flexible the numbers are. Mm-hmm. So what I, I'm thinking of statistics. So in physics, you you can probably get to something and say the answer we found that this was x plus or minus something else some units and when you get to biology and you have the response measurements may be very different from animal to animal or from group to group cell population to cell population you have to include more numbers Mm -hmm. to be sure that what you're seeing is actually right so it depends on what scale you're looking at I mean, so the fields are different because they're often looking at things at different scales, which have different probabilities combined with them, which means you need to have more ways to be sure of what you're looking at. And the other part of it is that people like to see what they know about, so you need to be using the the best technology, or you need Mm -hmm. to be using something that they understand. So if everyone understands Western blots, then you need to show them a Western blot. If people understand flow cytometry plots, you need to do that. Oh yeah, so something. something. (laughs) Sorry, I just I smile and nod. No, that's okay. I do that to you all the time. (laughs) I was gonna say that um, even as someone like me, I've heard of like p values being something that's very absolute. But then I remember seeing this really interesting study about, or I don't know, article about how even p values can be tweaked. Depending on what test you do, I think. Or yeah, so I know p-values are like this, this marker of like being good evidence, but could you actually explain to me what a p-value is? I will try my best. For me okay. and for all the other non-STEM P-value people. is a significant value. So when you do a statistical test, you're trying to, you have a hypothesis and you're trying to prove it wrong. So you're trying to say that you're experiment your hypothesis is different from the null result and in essence the p-value is saying that there's this probability that you're right and that the values are in no way related this group group a is not randomly in no way can group a be randomly assumed to be group b like they are two distinct populations and the tests that you do are ways in which to prove that these two populations are different. And so they can be broken up into uh, parametric and non-parametric, so normalized and non-normalized. Or um, If you have a lot of data points, you'll assume that you populate the entire space of possible options you can have. Mm-hmm. So you can use a certain test for that because the data is normalized. It follows like a certain curve. And then if it's non-parametric, actually it's probably too much detail, but if you only have like a few data points, then you have to use more sophisticated measurements because you don't have enough numbers. Mm-hmm. So you may run into more 
ways to get an appropriate answer because there are fewer mm -hmm. samples to choose from. The p-value says, <laughs> oh my gosh. It's okay. It's the, the probability p of the probability of something happening by chance, right? Yes. So yeah. Yes. The p-value is a probability of something happening by chance. So having mm -hmm. a small p-value is saying there's a small chance that, mm -hmm. the, that these particles were the same. So for, for our listeners, the person chiming in just now is my partner, Thaddeus. Yes. Yeah. Thaddeus Bates, who knows a thing or two about statistics. Mm -hmm. and, and actually, that, that's pretty funny segue. Um, I, I use statistics. I understand it basically. I still have a difficult time explaining it to mm -hmm. people. Um, I, I leave the hard statistics for the statisticians. Mm -hmm. I just know what to look for and what is ethical and what's not ethical. Uh -huh. Ethical. That's what I try to look for. So again, like what kind of tests are okay to do and what are not okay to do. Am I representing the data as best as I can? Mm -hmm. um, determining the power of something before you actually do your experiment rather than doing the experiment and then saying, well, I have N of three and I want to make it work. Like there, there's some ways to do your experiments. But that said, the way that scientists engage with the, st the statistics, mm -hmm. very rarely do the scientists doing the statistics fully understand or have taken like a statics course, a statistics course mm -hmm. to understand the theory behind uh -huh. everything. We just go, oh. They just use it as a tool, but don't really think about we the apparatus. This, we're gonna use this test. Mm -hmm. It'll give us these results. Uh -huh. More or less. I mean, like, I think that's, it reminds me very much of this one XKCD comic that was like charting all the different scientific disciplines according to how objective they were. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you know, there's bio, and then chemistry is like purer than this physics. And then at the way, all the way at the end, they're like, hey, uh, there's math all over here, and that's supposed to be the most objective. But then I've seen this, um, this other take on it is like, they take that one, they make it own box, and what's actually supporting all of it are actually epistemological philosophers, so the humanities. Mm -hmm. And so for those of you who don't know, epistemology is one of the major fields of philosophy, which is just the philosophy of how you know. And yeah. so yeah. there's this um, other way that this complete apparatus about thinking about what evidence is, um, is perhaps being erased because again, it's become so field specific at different times and like, it's very hard to focus on everything at once. Yeah. And so I think it's perhaps interesting. So going from your field where perhaps it's much clearer and more evident to, to lay people what evidence is to something like mine where I think that yeah. the opposite sometimes tends to happen that because the relationship in the humanities to what truth truth is tends to be a lot more complicated. Sometimes people just want to throw up their hands and be like, well, it's all subjective. I have to just write my paper according to what my my teacher wants. And it's like, it's all just so subjective anyway. It's not about how good or bad it is. Yeah, and I've actually heard people comment. They'll just say like, oh, you can say whatever you want in humanities. Yeah. You can write whatever you want. It doesn't matter. You don't have to have any evidence at all. Yeah, but it's, it's not, not true. Yeah, it's not true. dispel this for us. Like, it's like even how I uh, teach paragraph organization in my first year writing seminars and advanced writing seminars. Like, that each, it's not just that each paragraph has to have a topic sentence and a, and a concluding sentence. It needs analysis and also um, evidence. And what's, and usually it's very easy for people to talk in generalities. And for me, evidence, it's, it's the easiest way to talk about it is like using quotations from the text, showing like looking very specifically at details. And so at least in literature, that's one way. Um, we've had this 
growth of this technique called what's called close reading at the okay. beginning of the 20th century. And in some ways, there's certain parts of humanities research that draw from or parallel scientific insofar that it makes similar claims to objectivity and this like precision evidence. And one of them has to do with what we this technique that we all try to teach our students, which is close reading, which is just pay attention to language. It matters how things are said. Like, because one way I like to say to my students, like, there's a difference between reading a Shakespeare play or like seeing a picture play versus reading the summary of Spark Notes. Because they feel like sometimes people are used to thinking about literature just like, oh, what's the meaning of it? But if it was just the meaning, why bother having literature in the first place without just having the summary? Okay, repeat this. <laughs> okay, so if the, so, meaning in literature is important, but literature cannot be reduced to meaning. The very structure of it, of how you represent it, is what matters. There's a difference between like that's why the Wikipedia summary of a book is not the same thing as reading the book itself. Okay. Does that make sense? Because there's something in way, the way that the language is used, or if we think about other fields that you like use visual mediums or anything like that, like that you can't really separate um, the message from the style. Sometimes the style is part of the integral part of the message. And if you ignore the aesthetics of it, you're actually ignoring what makes it makes it its own thing. Because mm -hmm. if you say to the, um, Trying to think of an example, like any a famous poem. Like, do you know the poem by William Wordsworth, "The Daffodils"? No. Okay, damn it. I have I've had that memorized. Hold on. Wait. Are it's you like say it? well, it starts with like, "I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats on high or veils and tails, when all at once I saw a crowd, a host of golden daffodils, beside the lake, beneath the trees, fluttering and dancing in the breeze." And it goes on like that. Mm -hmm. But if you're just to say like, "Daffodils are nice," that that could be like the meaning of the text. But then why have the poem? Because now they, okay, okay. So you have the poem and someone can get from it that they like daffodils, daffodils, but there's structure and there's language that he chooses to use, which have different. Yeah, and that there's so many more nuances than that nuances. can be just sim simply re uh, reduced to this one takeaway of the meaning. Instead, so like, where does the evidence come in here? So now you have a poem and you're trying to read it closely as an example. Yeah, and so what you'd say is like, um, well, the thing is like, I also uh, William Wordsworth is a romanticist. I'm not a romanticist, and apologies to all my romanticist friends here, because now I'm sure that I'm going to be uh, doing a, a job butchering this. I just thought it'd be an easy. Um, I thought it'd be an easy, well-known example of a poem, which evidently it isn't. Um, but close reading would be about like, what sort of language techniques do you use? Like, how do you rhyme, for example? So, for example, um, the way that rhyme often functions is a way of drawing attention to certain points to emphasize certain things. And so that means like not all words are created equal. Like the the rhyming is about um, emphasizing certain types of words, but also perhaps the type of rhyme is also about reinforcing a certain type of of feeling that also gives a certain atmosphere to a poem. And so close reading then becomes about paying close attention to what the language is doing and that the words themselves matter and the structure matters and the different things um, of how it put, is put together matter in and of itself as opposed to just being merely window dressing for meaning. So where does the evidence come? So the evidence would be then about, it's about the technique of, of use um, a technique of how you approach it. Like, how do you quote something very precisely? 
um, and then interpret it. And I think evidence then is also about, uh, it's a, it's sort of difficult to say because in literature, like there's many different ways that you can do analysis because the close reading is only one aspect. There, you could also do bring in the historical, you could bring in the theoretical. And I think that my personal preference is like, I like doing a combination of all these things that ends up creating this, um, a, a well-considered account uh, and, a, and a good argument. So the evidence is support. Yeah, support. So you're, because I guess for me, when I have evidence, I, I make an experiment and I show, uh -huh. and then I analyze that experiment and I say, um, I introduce point, I introduce drug A to animal and then I have an output and I'm measuring mm -hmm. it. And if I get the one I want or not, then it supports my claim that this does this effect. Mm -hmm. And I'm, excuse me, I'm hiccuping. Hiccup it's okay. And I'm trying to think, how does that apply, or it does it apply? Like in the case of our poem, only as an example, we don't have to really get into like what the poem says, but then you say, I think this poem is showing Crowdiness, it's like dark brooding or uncertainty, and then you would say, "Look how they use yeah. the the colors to represent something," mm -hmm. um, or then look how people in this genre typically use this. This is a common theme mm -hmm. that you quote in from different places. Is that kind of how you use yeah evidence? And so, like, there's some similarity that like. And looking carefully at things that could be like looking at frequency, looking at um, how it recurs. And like, so there's some, I think, similarities, but maybe it also has to do with like a basic disciplinary difference in terms of how we approach approach truth. Because it seems like for you guys, it's a lot about eliminating factors in order to like really isolate something. And then like it, you really get to something. Whereas for us, it's not about reducing meaning, but about proliferating meaning. Proliferating meaning. That's not about having an absolute, say like Moby Dick. It's not about having the, the one reading that will um, be the theory that explains everything about Moby Dick. Instead, it's about Moby Dick as a text being so rich that there's so many different arguments that can be made that can even contradict each other from it. Well, that is a funny thing. Um, science is, can be a rat race. You're not mm -hmm. the only person who's interested in cancer. Yeah. And... It is also possible for many people to be studying the similar thing at the same time, and ideally they should be getting the same results. But sometimes one lab does something and they show something counter and to counteractive to what someone else shows, and that's not really a good thing. Then you're confused and you want to find the person who's right. You you mm -hmm. want to find some consensus in the field, and you want to do it first, preferably, uh -huh. so that you don't get scooped and so your paper is still valid. But you want it to be supported. You want to have people be able to come after you and say, I found what they found. Because mm -hmm. otherwise your paper will be retracted and it's not really good for your career. You'll, you'll have to go back to the journal and say, I was wrong. Or sometimes if something was really important, um, actually there was a huge case last year with um, stem cells and a lab in Japan claiming that they could produce like oh yeah, I remember hearing, and then the person ended up committing suicide. Yeah, like, committed and suicide. Died suicide. Yeah. So they weren't able to replicate the data. Mm -hmm. 
And it was actually, it's available online. It was this 30-page document about the investigation into it and how some of the figures for the paper were actually taken from um, a postdoc's uh, dissertation. So they weren't even the cells in question. So, so yeah, it's a really huge thing to be able to have consistency. If mm -hmm. you are saying something, it needs to be right, and it needs to, you need to not only have the data to support it, but it has to be repeatable by other mm -hmm. laboratories. And I think what's difficult in the humanities, especially when we're trying to argue for our value, is that so many of the things that we hold dear as disciplinary principles are not things that operate according to this type of mentality. And because it doesn't, it's easy to completely dismiss our field of study. And so in a way, I think it, I think it is, it's like on the one hand, like it's not that our work is any less rigorous, any less, uh, any less important about the use of say evidence or good argumentation, but the standards are just so different and like the core values of our disciplines are so different that yeah, I could definitely see, I can definitely understand from a certain perspective that perhaps we seem superfluous or it seems like anything goes when it's actually not the case at all. But so how is it that not anything goes? Where, what comes that check? So I'm trying to make a claim. I think I have the evidence for this claim. I mean, where is the part where not anything goes? Well, I think it's still... I guess there's, a, there's so many different variables that go into it. Like, for example, maybe, oh dear, I, I wanna talk about history as an example, but I'm not a historian, and I have friends who are historians that might be listening to this and absolutely cringing. So I'm trying to think of a, a good example, and I just worry that I'm doing- Will they be cringing? Oh, poss possibly, but they're, they're also very good friends. Hey, Mari, so. Well, our science people won't cringe. Yeah, uh, I guess so. But I just sort of worry also then, it's like, am I confirming then biases of STEM people about the uselessness of the humanities? No, I don't, I don't think so. Keep going. No, I th it's like, it's this sort of curious thing then where like the humanity is always, is under pressure to, to defend itself according to standards that it itself does not hold. And on one hand, it's something that perhaps needs to be done under the current structure of the university where cost has to be justified, but at the same time, it's one that's also antithetical to the way that we approach our study. So. Maybe something about the power of ideas or even how beautiful they are and like the type of power they have. Cause like, it's not like people don't disagree in the humanities. In, in, in fact, there's entire schools of thought that um, argue against each other in absolutely any field. Like I'm thinking, for example, um, there's Afro-pessimism versus, uh, versus, I don't really know if people call them Afro-optimists. Um, there's different fields with different schools within queer theory. There's different, there's so many different theoretical approaches that sometimes clash against each other, different schools of interpretation over certain texts. And it's not like those fights are any less um, pointed and barbed even though on the one hand I said like it's about proliferation of knowledge, but there's something about the, the exercise of human intellect in and of itself that is part of the spectacle. So is there 
good evidence. How do you distinguish between good evidence and bad evidence? I'd say it'd have to do with the sensitivity to, like, I think there is such thing as evidence that is better than others and worse than others, and has to do a lot with the sensitivity towards the material and how attentive you are to, like, say, a text and its context and all the things around it. But maybe there's also no, no such thing as an absolute good or bad, and that a lot of our discipline is about, if literature is always about questioning what, what is good and what is bad, to then say that there's an absolute good or bad is also sort of a problem. Some things are better than others. Some things are like, you can train yourselves to be better than others, but there's no absolute perfect. Okay, so you can say what you want, but it just won't be accepted by many people. Well, something like that. Um, I mean, I suppose like in some ways, I think it's also the case in in science, like there's sort of this element of consensus reality within academia that whatever values is hold to be held to be true, like the particular school of thought has a type of prominence. Um, whatever values it like, it's sort of like what Thomas Kuhn do, uh, talks about with uh, paradigm shifts in science that sometimes like the paradigm has to change for something to be accepted, but a part of it is that a lot of people have to believe it to make a type of consensus reality. So there is this relationship between having the evidence, and maybe the evidence makes internal consistency, mm -hmm. makes internal, internal sense, but there's also the jury, mm -hmm. so the community outside, which validate it, which validate that evidence and say this evidence is good. Yeah, but then also I think the question is that there's no real outside. Yeah. And so it was sort of like the coming to what you're talking at the very beginning, that like, Different fields have different standards of evidence, but if you put the same evidence in a different field, it doesn't have the same weight or is not quite seen the same way. Yeah. They, they would wonder why you're doing it. They would be looking for something, and when they don't find it, probably find your data less wanting because... So engineers, biomedical engineers, tend to have a hard time publishing in um, traditional biology journals mm -hmm. because they're doing an engineering approach which is different than the biology they're used to, and they're not seen as being the same good data, like mm -hmm. really solid evidence, because again, they're looking for certain things, and engineers may not be doing things in the same way, and they just don't, they find the information less credible because of that. Yeah, and so I think it also comes to this, I feel like, maybe because we're being uh, this philosopher Martin Heidegger, is like the very way that the type of question you ask determines the type of answer. Yes. And also the field that you're in determines the type of questions you can ask. And so perhaps, like, so I think within STEM, like, it's obviously like there's some overlap, mm -hmm. but then because, for example, between my discipline and your discipline, like the questions that we're asking are so different because field concerns are so different, that's why the end results look so, so strange to us. Yeah. So how do you think this fits into the context of more, of a more... Um, be evidence in popular culture? Yeah, or? like a less academic sense in the way that we as a population in pop culture view evidence. Yeah, and I think, for example, one thing that I remember hearing that was really interesting is that people talk about the CSI effect. What's that? Which is because of the popularity of shows like CSI, um, the public overestimates the importance of DNA evidence as being something that's absolutely objective that cannot be falsified. Mm -hmm. And because of that, there's more likely to have... Um, the, it completely changes verdicts because people expect that crime scene investigations will be like CSI and that there should be the certain standard of evidence when actually in reality that doesn't happen because it's not as clean as that. 
or that you know people don't want to think that it could be falsified because it seems to be like the gold standard for what it is yeah. and because of that that has real impacts on like what type of sentencing happens who gets accused of certain things it also means that um, I don't know like this just becomes a lot more complicated in terms of persuading people but also what sort of things get collected what sort of things get paid attention to um, how do you value witness te like if you only have witness testimony, no DNA evidence after something horrendous has happened, what if people, like how do people weigh that, for example? Mm -hmm. And I think perhaps the most prescient thing um, that I mentioned at the very beginning is like with all these cases of police brutality is like what then becomes good evidence as well. Um, and we've seen like this this sliding scale that before people would be like, well, there's, there's a photo, but you know, what if we had a video? And now that people are taking videos, we have videos. People, People don't those. Yeah, don't think it's enough either. Despite so, like the claim of like saying like, oh, body, we should have body cams in all the police because that will uh, be good evidence. But now we, when we have body cams, that's not enough either. It seems like the standards of evidence keep on shifting, because again, as as I was saying, maybe in the academic sense, is like because the concerns of these people coming in are some much similar to like differences in paradigm and difference in fields, just because they don't they don't hold the same values. And so it doesn't really, like, it's not like a value is inherent in the evidence itself. The value is inherent in what the sort of values are that, of the people asking to begin with. And so for some people, there will never be enough evidence to yeah. prove. Because to, it doesn't go against what they already believe. Yes, yes. Um, and I think that's even the most recent example of the, um, the schoolgirl in South Carolina. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk a little bit recap for our viewers in case they haven't oh, come across it? Yeah, so there was there was an incident where a student was violently ejected from her chair. Yeah, a black student. Yeah. Um, high school student? By, yes, by a police officer. I think he worked for the high school. And I think she was arrested. Mm -hmm. And uh, a fellow classmate took a video of this interaction so by the time he had his camera on he only caught the part where he where she was being like thrown around mm -hmm. <clears throat> and again to the point where she's sitting down and the chair kind of moved with her and it just it was pretty violent violent looking and I kind of had a really weird experience with this I was traveling at the time mm -hmm. and so when I got back onto this onto social media I'm reading all the reports, I didn't, I watched the video, but not like multiple times, I just kind of saw it in passing, I more so read the, I read multiple news articles about it, and that's kind of how I like to read the news, or get the news, because to me, evidence, mm -hmm. if, if I can get more than one source mm -hmm. to say the same thing, then the things that they're saying that are cohesive are probably more than likely accurate about what we know, mm -hmm. and then the things where people are not saying the same thing or there's a little confusion then I, I say okay maybe that's this is less this is more tenuous and I was in the airport and they were playing these clips of the video and it was hard for me because there were um, three people sitting next to me they were they all happened to be white there were two men one woman and they were talking about the incident mm -hmm. and I was actually surprised they were doing that because one guy was like, oh, do you think this is racist? 
and so they were just talking about it and saying, oh, that I wouldn't want that to happen to my child. And uh, one person then said, like, no, she got what she deserved. She shouldn't have been disobeying the police officer. And it's her fault. If she had a cell phone at school, she should have, like, given away. And, like, and then she started to blame the parents, mm. her parents. And uh, it was very frustrating for me to hear because... I could see that they had listened to this video because I just heard the same video they heard. Mm -hmm. But having read, like, multiple accounts online, what I also know is that apparently uh, her mother just died and her grandmother just died. And so to have this person sort of make a story, like, fabricate the story of, like, parents are the reason why she's disobedient and not paying attention. When, again, reading the other accounts... The classroom was completely silent. The other students didn't understand what was happening, which, and they were very alarmed when the police came in, and then also she was violently ejected from her seat, mm-hmm. which is why the video was be taking, being taken in the first place, because it was, it was so out of the blue. And this girl never talked to anyone. She was very quiet. And so, again, it took everyone by surprise, and, uh, again, it was just very shocking and really hurtful for me to hear someone making up this story, to have some hear someone having absolutely no sympathy mm-hmm. for the situation and somehow making up this, being able to fabricate this story mm-hmm. that wasn't actually even the case, it, it seemed like, again, she had this evidence, she wanted to believe that she deserved it. And, like, no matter what you had said, this person deserved what they saw. Um even though, you know, it didn't, the video didn't capture the whole incident. I think it captured enough. So, but nothing, like, yeah. it was like nothing, nothing will be could enough. have convinced that woman. Yeah. That was what was kind of hurtful for me. Nothing could have convinced that woman that that, that student didn't deserve to be treated that way. Mm-hmm. Not a deaf, not being new at school, not even being polite before it happened. Mm-hmm. She was automatically, she, again, she made up the story. The stuff that she was saying wasn't from the news, the video. Not to mention the video also didn't have everything. I was actually very disappointed with what I, the stuff I found out from reading multiple articles mm-hmm. versus the stuff that they showed on the TV. They basically just showed the clip and then went to the police officer saying, this is completely justified, um, it wasn't racist, the police has a black girlfriend, so obviously him attacking a black woman wasn't racist. And it's like, that's that's horrible. Mm-hmm. That's hideous. Not to mention, it's really not about who's doing the action so much as who's receiving. So we live in a culture where black people are perceived to be violent and dangerous. So if that's a cultural norm, then it doesn't matter whether you're black or you're white. You still grow up hearing these mental images mm-hmm. and the use of power against black people is in the harsher sentences that's what's the issue it doesn't really matter mm-hmm. that the person is doing it or that they have a black friend or a white friend or or an asian friend and that's not really what the issue is and the second thing is that there there's numerous studies so, well i don't like saying things about signing them but i do think it's true that um places that black students do receive harsher sentences yes yes 
and harsh or, treatment. Yeah, even within schools, like, they tend to be expelled for some things that, like, students have... Even uh, in schools that yeah. are all black. That mm -hmm. just means everyone's being suspended at higher rates. And somehow we don't want to look at that because the population is all black. But it's absolutely true. And I, I know this from personal experience as well. So... So it was very hard for me to yeah. Cause, and of that course, no evidence yeah. is good enough. And also I feel like, of course, it's not only her um, in the context of this his, uh, history of how black people are, are have and are treated in the U.S., but also she her identity as a black woman in particular, that there's a sort of aspect of violence when it's being done against women that people always want to victim blame. Yeah. And so this is doubly the case for her as yeah. a young black girl. And so they were mentioning that the student didn't put up her cell phone and um, it's just weird to me because you, there's no way, like if we're being practical about this matter, I'm pretty sure every teenager yes. had a cell phone yes. and there's no real way, like sure, no cell phones allowed in school, but really? She's going to go to jail because she pulled out her cell phone when everybody probably has a cell phone. Yeah, if you're going to slam every kid into the ground, there's going to be a lot of slamming going on. It's just, I just, I'm, I have trouble kind of seeing how this became like an incident where the police had to come mm -hmm. because a child wanted to use her cell phone, didn't want to give it up. Um, and also just thinking about teenagers in general, what I, what I really think is there should have been people who are policing that system, who actually were able to take care of, of, of teenagers. So you should have some sense of how yeah. teenagers work. And if you can't convince a teenager to get out of their chair, should he be in the like, line of is work? violence the first place? That's like blaming... I was talking to a friend earlier today, and I, and I said to him, that's like blaming... A, that's like hitting a two-year-old because they keep trying to get Skittles. They keep going for the shiny thing. Like, mm -hmm. are you really going to like penalize um, a toddler for doing something that they can't really control. Like teenagers are still somewhat of adolescents. They're still learning. They're still teenagers. They're kind of annoying. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> so, but somehow they didn't. She didn't get the opportunity to be humanized. Mm -hmm. She didn't. She didn't get that. It was more. Um, I don't know. That, that that was hard. It made me realize there'd be, never be any sympathy. Yeah, and what's sort of no weird evidence. is like again, so this sort of question that like if the video wasn't evidence enough, and this evidence is being so widely disseminated, being shown so widely, and still it doesn't matter. Like, for some it did. Again, the other yeah. two were like that was horrible. This is clearly racist. And the other person yeah. was like, no, she got what she deserved. She shouldn't have resisted arrest. She mm -hmm. shouldn't have done this. She shouldn't have done that oh, my child wouldn't do that. My child would just give up their cell phone in the first place. And it's like, your child would never have been asked to give up the cell phone. Yeah. Probably. Um, yeah, it, it's just, it's just hard. It just made, in that moment, I felt, I truly understood what it meant to, for someone to have no sympathy. Because mm -hmm. I've never actually heard people talk about it. I know how I feel about it. But to hear this kind of random conversation about it, and also to hear them kind of getting the facts wrong, and and again, just making this judgment, no sympathy. And perhaps from that, it's like, we've been talking a lot perhaps about evidence in very quantifiable ways, but perhaps there's this sort of cultural and emotional content to evidence that we haven't been talking about, that there's an interesting way that for that person it didn't resonate emotionally at all, but for 
like for me it was traumatic, but I'm sure it was doubly traumatic for you. And like there's, I think there's a lot of conversations in um, activist parts of social media that on the one hand we're trying to disseminate these videos so we can get it more widely known, but at the same time it's often like, it's really stressful for people and stuff, yeah. especially like these images of um, violence against black bodies. It was really stressful for a lot of black people to see. And like, so you're also create uh, perpetuating a type of violence over and over again. Yeah. And so it's not just about like it being this objective piece of evidence. It's like it's impacting people so very differently on a way that maybe can't be quantified in a sim simple way. But because it can't be quantified, doesn't make it any less important. Yeah, I don't like it. I actually I walked away. Mm -hmm. I got up and I walked away. I literally thought to myself, like, especially when they again she started trying to blame the parents. Um, and I, and it was weird because in that moment I knew that I had factual evidence yeah. to support my claim that what she was saying wasn't true. And that I could then, I could say like, maybe I just started like conversation and try to engage. Mm -hmm. And then I, I just thought it doesn't matter. Yeah. It doesn't matter. No, none of this matters. I can tell you facts all day long. Yeah. She's still yeah. going to think this way. Um, I can give her my personal experiences. I can even justify my credibility. Mm -hmm. You know, I can tell her oh, I have a PhD from Cornell, and uh, that's not going to matter either. Yeah, because like, honestly, yeah. it won't. Facts are facts and evidence are never neutral. They're never outside of culture. They're never outside of history. They really mm -hmm. aren't. Instead, I would have just been that very. I would just been the rude person interrupting their conversation at yeah. an airport. And then the colors typify is like the angry black out. woman or something like that. Yeah. yeah, and so I just took a walk. Yeah. And fortunately, when I by the time I got back, they were gone. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry that. Oh, oh it's, God. It's life. <sighs> but evidence, I, I do think it's interesting how the evidence that we think of and how we view evidence in terms of our own disciplines does have some resemblance to how we look at evidence in other parts of our lives, mm -hmm. in, the, in the cultural aspects of our lives. It's okay. actually, that reminds me of something, and, and then we should probably close on this, but scientists like to believe that as, a, that as, science, as trained scientists, they will understand other scientific evidence that isn't in their field. Uh -huh. And it's funny, because they don't. But we think that we think that because we understand this so well, I should be able to understand another field uh -huh. or be easily adapted. And so you have this false sense of confidence when really it, it's another field. You, you have to learn it. You're mm -hmm. just as like, um, I guess you're, you're just as ignorant as a lay person would yeah. be. But we don't think that we are. Mm -hmm. And I, I can really see that going in a lot of different directions because we think we know something and the things yeah we do we know that one thing though like we still have to understand the field the next thing that we're going into but when we don't think that we need to learn anything different or respect treat the new information we're trying to learn with any more clarity or hum humility mm -hmm. than we do then we run into huge problems because then we miss all the, the details that are so important that those people in that field actually strive to, to learn and to make nuance of. Mm -hmm. And I think there's perhaps some comparison to be made between disciplinary fields and then what we're talking about in culture at large about mm -hmm. 
that there's different also cultural paradigms between people the paradigm yeah. that you share had versus that that one person versus the other two all being very different paradigms and sort of constituting their own type of disciplinary fields in a less formalized fashion yeah yeah because it's absolutely true that 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 I'm probably more aware I'm gonna let me say I was probably more aware and that the, the the lens that I was using to look at all of them was way different than the conversation they were having um, and I tried to be cognizant of that. It's just, it was very frustrating, too. Mm -hmm. Oh, this is so somber. I know. But, um, if any, if there is any take home, it's to, uh, be critical. Be and, critical, yeah. And maybe it's understanding what you don't know that's really more important than trying to to know everything yeah like again if you're saying like you looked at so many different sources i feel like maybe this has become we come to this point in many of our, our podcasts that there's no easy answers but what you can do is try to be continually critical and keep on talking about it and i feel like that's something i always get out of conversations with you again like yeah. to, um, to end on a more firming note it's like because we're talking across difference like that's one way of continuing to be productively critical yeah. and trying to be aware of our own limitations yeah. And I have to admit, when you were explaining the English, when you were explaining yeah. like how you get data, I was, I was thinking like, oh, I don't, I don't know what she's saying. No, no, it's okay. And also, we would never call it data. I know, I know. You don't call it data, and I'm like, that's, that's like my frame. I'm trying yeah. to put my yeah. frame onto your framework. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you're like, no. Also, apologies, all humanities people, if I didn't do a sufficient job. Um, yeah, so I'm funny. I ask for no apologies. <laughs> I, I guess so. I guess so. I guess it's more that I know I'm. I know that there's like this feels like science and technology studies where people like I'm having fun of me like Helen Longino's science as a social knowledge vows an objectivity and scientific inquiry, um, and so I'm very much aware that people have done this type of work, but I'm not. You know what you don't know. Well, somewhat, but uh, like you're giving credit. Yes, very much true, and that I'm very much aware that the things that I might I might be articulating have been articulated by other people better. That this whole entire conversation that I've been having across decades professionally through people. Yeah, that's that's cool. <laughs> yeah I guess so. Yeah, I guess so. And I guess maybe this also comes with imposter syndrome, but maybe that's a whole other uh, podcast to do. Oh, us and our imposter syndrome. Everyone in academia and their imposter syndrome. Yeah, yeah that is, that is another conversation. And with that, we're going to listen. Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening. I'm Zain Yao. This is Wayne.